0: Hello. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to OT with DA. Great to see people. I'm waiting. There we go. Signing on via Instagram Live. Welcome to YouTube. We are in, what is it? Chapter 68 today? Is that right? Let's see. Chapter 66. Excuse me. Chapter 66 today. After today's chapter, there are only seven chapters left in our reading challenge through a large portion of the Old Testament we are using as our textbook, Patriarchs and Prophets, written by Ellen White, a book that I loved before we started this reading challenge, and a book that I have fallen even more in love with since doing this reading challenge. So I hope you're having the same experience that I am. Hope you're having a good morning or evening or afternoon or wherever you are. Let me tell you a little bit about where I'm at and what's been happening here. First of all, as many of you know, I've been teaching at Arise, which is a school, a discipleship school, a ministry school that uh, I founded in partnership with my uh, close friend, Pastor Nathan Renner, in 2003. And so this is now 2022, so the school's been running for basically 20 years, and we because of COVID, couldn't run last year, but now we we have resumed, and we're in the middle, actually kind of toward the second half of the Arise program here in Australia. 36 students. It's going absolutely amazing, and I've been teaching since I arrived two and a half weeks ago, and I'll teach again today. We're actually talking about church history this week, and so it's going amazing. So um, when I arrived, it was nice, and it was pretty sunny, and they had just Finished with a, a flood, a very significant flood. When I lived here back in 2017, we had a flood that, that flooded the whole, what's called the Tweed Valley, which is uh, basically the Tweed River flows down the Tweed Valley from the mountains out into the ocean. And in 2017, when I was here, there was a, a, the greatest flood on record in this area, and they called it a 100 year flood. They said, yep, it's a 100 year flood. And there were like three, four, five meters of water just running right through the, the Tweed Valley and through towns like Merwillimba. And close friends of ours lost their homes, had their businesses under three or four meters of water. I mean, it was very serious. So that was the 100-year the flood. Well, lo and behold, just about a month ago, a little less than that now, I think, um, there were even bigger floods in the very same area, um, not only in the Tweed Valley, but also further south in Lismore, which had also been significantly affected in 2017. And this flood was even greater than the flood in 2017. So that 100-year flood actually turned out to be two floods of that same magnitude in five years. And, okay, now here's the important part. Well, that's important. And and, uh, again, People lost their houses, people lost their lives, people lost their businesses. And these are these are people that I've pastored for seven years. You know, this is my community, this is my area. And the floods is just unimaginable. I mean, there were areas where the flood water, somebody told me that the flood water went over the the levee down in Lismore and it was like seven or eight meters deep, which is like 25 feet. Um so the flood sort of ended or or the, the rain ended and the floods began to res, res, recede about two weeks ago. And then we had a, a short period there, several days where it didn't rain. And then now for like the last week plus, it's raining again. I mean, right now I can hear it. You probably cannot hear it, but it's just absolutely dumping rain outside and has been for like the last week. And when I say dumping rain, I mean like turn the faucet on and the rain is just It's hard to imagine there could be that much water. And so many of the areas that had already been flooded, not once, but twice, are now flooding again. And so, yeah, so much so that, for example, the administrator of Arise, Lyndon, who's a wonderful man of God and a dear friend, he is flooded in at his house. And people are having to get around again by boats. So, yeah, it would be great if the rain would stop, and if you'd like to join us in prayer that the rain will stop and the sun will come out, that would be awesome. I mean, yesterday we had class at Arise not in the normal building that we normally have it in. We had class in the church because we couldn't get to the building that we would normally have Arise in without wading through a ton of water, and so we just decided, well, it's easier to just do class in the church. It's amazing. Absolutely amazing to see. Again, you know, you have these floods that were supposed to be once in a century floods. You get two of them in five years. And then now since that flood, the second one, which ended just about a month ago, it's still raining. Just absolutely dumping rain. In fact, I'll just show you here on Instagram. I can't show you on YouTube, but give me one second. Let me just show you this. Okay. You're getting a little sneak peek here. Look at this. Let me open this up. This is unscripted. Okay, look at this. Incredible. Absolutely incredible. So, there you have it. It's been dumping rain like that for the last week. Let me put my studio back together now. Unscripted and we're back. All right, apologies to YouTube. You didn't get to see the rain. You'll just have to trust me. It's amazing. I mean, it's just all night. nonstop rain, and it just sounds like it sounds like somebody's taking a shower right next to your head, and it's been that way basically for the last week. And that was after just a short little period of no rain. And the floodwaters began to recede. And then now, because the ground is so saturated, it's entirely possible that if these rains don't stop, it could flood again. Wow. Amazing. Absolutely amazing. So that's what we're going through here. Prayers would be appreciated. That would be great. I see people saying, well, we could use some rain here. Man, wouldn't it be great if it worked that way? Wouldn't it be awesome if we could say, okay, we're going to take the rain from here because we've got too much, and we're going to send it over there. So it's it's a pretty serious situation that we're in here, and it would be great if the rain would stop. All right, speaking of serious situations, we are right down to the end of OT with DA. I mean, are you kidding me? We are down to the end of OT with DA. After today, there are only seven chapters left. I can hardly believe it. Seven chapters left. I have lined up uh, at least two and maybe three additional guests. The plan will be to do a doubleheader again, I think on Sabbath or Sunday, or maybe both. So stay tuned. Um, Some people are saying, well, the doubleheaders are, you know, it's kind of a lot of material. Yeah, of course it is. But I'm also constrained by um, trying to finish up so that when I'm done teaching at Arise, I'm mostly done with OT with DA because I'm technically supposed to be on vacation at that point. As I've mentioned, I think before, my anniversary is on April four, so... Yeah, if I can do a double header, at least one or maybe even two, then I can finish up sometime around Monday or Tuesday, which is the plan. So stay tuned to Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. I'll let you know if we're going to do a double header and when it'll happen. Also, on my Friday and your Thursday, I'm going to figure out how we're going to do the drawing. And uh, the drawing will be just to remind you briefly. The drawing will be we're going to give away two conflict. Beautiful sets. And we're going to give away two Light and Life collection sets. Um, Light and Life is Christ Object Lesson, Steps to Christ, and Thoughts from the Mount of Blessing. That's uh, a set of books that we'll be going through in our reading challenges, not next, because next will be Prophets and Kings, which will be the second part of OT with DA, but we're going to take some time off. We'll do that later in the year. So we're going to give away that. And I think we're even going to give away a set or two of the journals. So we're going to have a giant giveaway. It's going to be amazing. I don't. I've got to find the website. I don't remember the website that I used. Um, but we'll do the thing. You'll basically have uh, four or five days, something like that, in order to you know get entered, get your name in there, and uh, then we'll do the drawing. And after we've done the final chapter, chapter seventy three, we'll we'll have a big review. We'll have a big close, and uh, we'll do the drawing, and it'll be a lot of fun. Same kind of thing we did with DA with DA. So I'll figure that out on my Friday, which is, I think, day after tomorrow, I lose track of the days. I lose track of the months, should the truth be told. If you stop me randomly like 10 times throughout the year and just said, David, what month is it? I could probably tell you five out of the 10 times that you stopped me. Now, I know right now it's March because this is the month before my anniversary. But I'm telling you, I'm, I'm terrible with time. Bad. So so it's not just when I say, hey, we're going to go for about an hour and we go for an hour and 20 minutes. It's not just that I'm bad with time in small increments. I'm just bad with time full stop. So even months, I I went a whole year one time telling people that I was not the age that I was, but I thought I was that age. I think I was telling people I was 26 when I was actually 27. And my mom overheard me telling somebody how old I was. And she said, you're 27. And I said, Really? And she said, yeah, do the math. You're, you're 27. You were 26 last year. And so I was like, hmm. So I, sure enough, I did the math, which as we've already noted is a real strength of mine. And sure enough, I was 27. And it kind of felt like it was my birthday. So I asked my mom if she would take me out for dinner since it was my birthday. And um, she said no. So anyway, yeah, I'm not great with time. But the plan here is to try to wrap up OT with DA in about the next week. Okay, so it's going to be amazing. I can't wait. But on Friday, you'll definitely want to be staying in tune to Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram because I'll have the information about the drawings on there. And if you're thinking, I already have a set of the Conflict Beautiful. I've already ordered a set of the Light and Life Collection. I already have the journals. Awesome. You can still enroll in the drawing. And if you win, bam, great gift. An outstanding gift to give to somebody else. I've given away several sets of the Conflict Beautiful, I think four sets now, and I've given away a set of the journals, and um, I'm looking forward to giving away some sets of the Light and Life collection. So you can do that too if you win the drawing and you already have a set. Uh, All right, without uh, further ado, we are in chapter 66 The Death of Saul, and this is a sad chapter. It's a depressing chapter, it's a dark chapter. And I was actually originally thinking about rolling chapter 66 and chapter 67 together because tomorrow's chapter is titled Ancient and Modern Sorcery. But when I kind of spent a little bit more time thinking about it, I thought, no, I want to give that its full, so tomorrow will be in chapter 67. I want to give that its, its full weight and due. So rather than combining chapters, and I also didn't want to get right down to the end of OT with DA and combine chapters because I haven't done that up to this point. And it would have messed with my sort of uh, O.T. Uh, I almost said O.T. O.C.D. Which I don't actually have, I don't think. But I, I just say that. Okay, so let me turn here in my Bible to 1 Samuel. You would have noticed if you read the biblical material that this chapter is based on. That this is based on chapters 28 and 31, if I'm not mistaken. Yes. And chapter 31 is the last chapter of 1 Samuel. Right? Here it is right here. First 1, uh, 1 Samuel. Chapter 1, verse 31, it's the last chapter. So let's pray, and we'll get into this. Welcome, everybody. So glad that you are here. We are right at the very end of OT with DA, and there's a simultaneous sadness and elation. Sadness in that our journey for the time being is paused, and elation that we've done it. We've done it. The Lord has been with us, and uh, it's been an awesome experience. I'm looking forward to finishing up the Old Testament later in the year. More details on that to follow. I saw somebody just said that this was a heavy chapter. Great word. Totally agree. Very heavy chapter and a hard to read chapter. Um, There's a word in here that many of you might know, but if you don't know it, I'll I'll teach you a new word. And uh, it's an important word. And I think this chapter, it's not my word for the chapter, but it really captures sort of the essence of the chapter. Um, All right, let's pray together. Father in heaven, we love you, we thank you, we lean into you. Father, we we do want to ask, I want to ask, that it would be great if this rain could stop. Um, Father, there is just already so much pain and and so much heartbreak in this valley and in the adjacent valleys over the flooding in 2017, now the recent flooding. And Father, it, it just seems like it would be amazing, awesome, and and really possible for you to just stop the rain. And Father, I know that there are many hundreds, thousands of people that are praying for the same thing, so we're asking again, Lord, we don't know everything that you know, we don't see everything that you see, we don't understand. There, 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 are, there are infinitely complex factors, or at least seemingly infinitely complex factors that go in to your providence and your actions and when you act and how you act and why you act. Father, we don't presume to tell you how to run things and how to do things and how to make the best decisions. But Father, from our limited perspective and vantage point, it appears to us like it would definitely be the best thing if the rain could stop. And again, Lord, we don't see what you see. So take this prayer, obviously, and filter it through what would be ultimately best. And Father, we know that there is a great controversy and that there is uh, a war back and forth between you and other agents, human and non-human agents. And Father, we just want to and really, what we're looking at in this chapter is that war playing out in in a very real way. So, Father, we just want to lean in and say that we declare that we're on your side. You have already made it very clear you're on our side uh, in the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. But, Father, we just want to say we trust you, we believe in you, and at the same time, we're asking, we're asking, we love you and thank you and pray that you'll be with us now as we open up this chapter, chapter sixty six in our challenge is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Are you ready? As I've already said, this is, as somebody else has said, it's a heavy chapter. It's a difficult chapter. It's a depressing chapter. And so let's start by just reading through paragraph one. I'm on page 830. Wow, 830. It says, uh, and this is 675 of the original pagination. Again, war was declared between Israel and the Philistines. The Philistines gathered together and came and encamped at Shunem on the northern edge of the plain of Jezreel, while Saul and his forces encamped but a few miles distant at the foot of Mount Gilboa on the southern border of the plain. It was on this plain that Gideon, with 300 men, had put to flight the hosts of Midian. But the spirit that inspired Israel's deliverer was widely different from that which now stirred the heart of the king. Gideon went forth strong in faith in the mighty God of Jacob, But Saul felt himself to be alone and defenseless because God had forsaken him. As he looked abroad upon the Philistine host, he was afraid and his heart trembled greatly. Now, obviously the troublesome phrase in that first paragraph is because God had forsaken him. And we've already noted that God's rejection of Saul was responsive to Saul's rejection of God. And Ellen White makes that point so well and so regularly in this chapter, that when she says here that God had forsaken him, it has to be understood theologically and just within this chapter itself, within the context of Saul's having forsaken God, Saul's having rejected God. So this is not arbitrary, it's not capricious, it's, it's not just God's serendipitous rejection of Saul. No, no, Saul has rejected God, God has now recognized and honored Saul's rejection of him, and we'll see. She drives, drives, drives at this point, which I'm personally so thankful for, because that's exactly how I read the biblical record. That's exactly how I understand it, and and Ellen White just, she nails it. Okay, second paragraph, it says, Saul had learned that David and his force were with the Philistines. That's how we closed yesterday's chapter, where David has gone to, what is it, Achish, and she says this was a really bad idea. It was a bad idea because, number one, he should have just trusted that God could take care of him and protect him, that God would be his shield, that God would be his protector. Number two, it was a really bad idea because it was perceived by many in Israel that in some sense, David, the Lord's anointed, right, the one who's going to be the successor to Saul, and Israel is increasingly coming to believe that, it now looks like he's almost defected from Yahweh and has gone to put his trust in the gods of the Philistines. Of course, that's not what happened. Or was happening, but that's the way it was perceived, right? And this is why, for example, the Bible says that we should avoid not only evil, but even the appearance of evil. And so it was a really bad decision, and Saul is now doubly cowering because he imagines that David, who he knows to be, you know, a fantastic warrior and brave and courageous and who knows intimately Saul and Israel and its armies, He's thinking, oh, no, this is going to be a war that I'm certainly going to lose now because David will go to war against me. So all of this was a really bad and ill-advised idea by David. And of course, just to state the obvious, none of this is supposed to be happening, right? We are so far down the rabbit hole, so far down the rabbit warren of God's original plan. I mean, first of all, there was not supposed to be a king. So there's not supposed to be a successor. There's not supposed to be a second king there's not suppo- the Philistines are not supposed to still be here so all of this is a giant mess it's so such a departure it is so far removed from God's original intent and and we're going to see that even here at this extremity of of God's original will and intent God still holds open the possibility of returning and turning to him and we'll get to that in just a second but let's finish this paragraph but we just have to continue to bear in mind we cannot Lose sight of the fact that all of this, even the great story of David and Goliath, the encouraging, inspiring story of David and Goliath, that's not supposed to have happened, right? Remember what could have been, what should have been, what might have been. And God works with what He has. This was my point from yesterday, right? In my journal here, I pick it up. And if we look at the person, I say God is constrained to some degree by the free choices of other agents he works in mysterious and unexpected ways which are not which are often not easily discerned okay so god works with what we give him and Saul's not given him much and even David a man after god's own heart has made a bad decision and so here again bad notes to go back to an earlier illustration that we used in OT with DA bad notes and bad chords are being thrown to god the master musician the master you know jazz guitarist and he takes a bad chord and he makes of it the best that he can but sometimes even the best that can be done is not optimal it's nowhere near optimal you know if you if you have a beautiful melody that's being sort of crafted or a beautiful piece of music that's being crafted and you throw in one bad note there can be a quick adjustment and and you know unskilled musicians might not even detect that there was a bad note at all but you throw two well it gets harder you throw three it gets harder still you throw them for Well, all of a sudden, it's hard to maintain that original musical piece and the beauty of that original musical piece when everything almost that's being given to you is bad notes. Discordant notes, bad notes, out-of-harmony notes, new rhythms. I mean, it's just like it sounds like a mess, right? And this looks like a mess, and it is a mess. All right, back to the second paragraph. Saul had learned that David and his force were with the Philistines, and he expected that the son of Jesse would take this opportunity to revenge the wrongs that he had suffered. By the way, I'm sorry, I just can't get going here. Can't get any momentum. Remember that that even David has practiced a little bit of deception again. He had the deception with Ahimelech when he pretended that he was on an errand for the king. But when Achish came to him and said, "Hey, I'm going to battle against your people tomorrow." You're estranged from your own people, your own king is trying to kill you, and I assume you will battle with me and with us against Israel. And David is deceptive here. He says, "You will see what I can do." right which Which is misleading. It's suggestive as if to say, "Oh yeah, you're going to see me in battle, and you're going to be impressed." so So here again, even David, oh mercy, a man after God's own heart is having to prevaricate and hide his actual intentions and his actual heart because he's not trusted in Yahweh. He's not trusted that God could deliver him and be his shield and his protector. So he has placed himself in an undesirable position, and when he's confronted, he kind of prevaricates, well, yeah, you'll see what I can do. So yeah, it's a a dark chapter in Israel's history, to be sure. It's a dark chapter, particularly in Saul's experience, as we'll see. I mean, he's not going to leave the chapter alive. The chapter's titled The Death of Saul, but even David here is well, well, well outside of God's plan for him, his original plan. That naive, innocent, humble, musical, trusting boy that we fell in love with back in the chapter on the anointing of David that was the final son of Jesse that was summoned, that boy is long since passed. What we're dealing with now is a hardened warrior. I mean, he's still has a heart after God's own heart to some degree, but he's a hardened warrior. He's a man that has been deceptive. He's a man that has blood on his hands, right? So so don't get the picture in your mind of David as that, that. That David is gone now, right? He's the same person, but his character is evolving in ways that are unfortunate, and not only unfortunate, tragic. And as we will see, The life of David in many ways will resemble the life of Saul in that he will allow kingly power and kingly prerogatives to go to his head. But unlike Saul, and I know I'm getting well ahead of the curve here, but unlike Saul, he will finally turn to God in humiliation, in contrition, and in repentance. Where Saul here doesn't turn and return to God, he's going to turn to Satan himself in an act of soliciting the services of a sorcerer. Okay? well, that's hard to say, soliciting the services of a sorcerer. All right, let's try again. Let's see if I can actually read through this second paragraph, which I've tried like three times now. Here we go. Saul had learned that David and his force were with the Philistines, and he expected that the son of Jesse would take this opportunity to to revenge the wrongs he had suffered. The king was in sore distress. It was in his own unreasoning passion, spurring him on to destroy the chosen of God, that's David, that had involved the nation in so great a peril. While he had been engrossed In pursuing David, he had neglected the defense defense of his kingdom. The Philistines, taking advantage of its unguarded condition, had penetrated into the very heart of the country. Thus, while Satan had been urging Saul to employ every energy in hunting David, Satan features significantly in this chapter, right? Satan is moving Saul to make these decisions. She continues, the same malignant spirit had inspired the Philistines to seize their opportunity to work Saul's ruin and overthrow the people of God. How often is the same policy still employed by the archenemy? He moves upon some unconsecrated heart to kindle, kindy, to kindle envy and strife in the church, and then, taking advantage of the divided condition of God's people, he stirs up his agents to work their ruin. Exactly. Satan is playing both sides of the fence here. He, and we're going to see that when Saul actually goes to Samuel goes to the sorceress and ostensibly is interacting with Samuel. Of course, it's not Samuel. God is not going to in any way sanction this sorcerer's, you know, services. But but Satan will play both sides, right? He, he plays this side, and then he quickly switches over and plays this side against that side. And I love the fact that she she makes the ecclesiastical application here, right? The church-based application that that Satan will come in and he'll stir up hearts to envy and jealousy and strife, right and and then he'll stir up people to observe that envy, jealousy and strife that's happening in the church and say, look at these people. They can't even get their own act together. Even though it was him that was the cause of the very thing that people are looking at and saying, really, that's the church? That's the people of God? Those are the chosen of God? And so when she says a malignant spirit, a cancerous spirit, a destructive spirit, she's exactly correct here. It's 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 perfect perfect communication. Now, this next section is maybe the most important section in the whole chapter, I thought. So now we're in the third paragraph, page 831, and I'm going to read through this, and I'm going to read through it slowly. The next day, Saul must engage the Philistines in battle, right? So, so the Philistines are assembled there, and Saul and his armies are assembled there. It says, the shadows the shadows of impending doom gathered dark about him. Just make a note there gathered dark about him. He longed for help and guidance, but it was in vain that he sought counsel from God. Why? Why would it be in vain? Well, she goes on to describe why. The Lord did not answer him either by dreams or by by the Urim, which was the stone that the priests wore, uh, or by the prophets. Now, this is maybe the most important line in the whole chapter. The Lord never turned away a soul that came to him in sincerity and humility. Underline it mark it, put a star by it. I mean, take that to the bank. The Lord never, 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 the Lord never turned away a soul that came to him in sincerity and humility, right? This is Hebrews chapter 13, verse five. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Never, not gonna happen. Well, then what is happening here? What is happening here? Well, let's continue to read. Why did he turn Saul away unanswered? Oh, now watch this. The king had, and I underlined all of these, and I invite you to do the same. The king had, here we go, number one, by his own act, by his own act, and then the next word is crucial, forfeited, which means to give up. The king had, by his own act, forfeited the benefits of all the methods of inquiring of God, prophets, urim, prayer, etc. He had rejected, underline it, he had rejected the counsel of Samuel the prophet. Next one, he had exiled David, the chosen of God. Next one, he had slain the priests of the Lord. Okay, so the language here is unambiguous. By his own act, he had rejected, he had exiled, he had slain, but she's not done. Could he expect to be answered by God when he had cut off the channels of communication? Who cut off the channels of communication? Is that something God cut? No, it is not. It's something that Saul himself had cut off, right? You just think about this. Saul was responsible for the death of, I keep forgetting, is it 82 or 85, right? It was amazing. 85 uh, priests of the Lord, right? The family of Ahimelech, with the exception of Ahimelech who escaped and, um, as Robbie said, Abiathar, or I say, I don't even remember how I say it. Abiathar is how Robbie said it. And I think I say Ebiathar, which probably both are wrong. So you don't just get to, I mean, man the insanity of sin here. Not just of Saul, but of sin generally. You slay the priests of the Most High God, you ignore God's prophet Samuel over and over. I mean, you serially ignore him. And then now you turn without sincerity and without repentance to God and you expect an answer. There is no answer. But again, That's not primarily God's rejection of Samuel. That is a recognition of, excuse me, of Saul. That is a recognition of Saul's rejection of God. And this is unambiguously the case. Because again, the Lord never turned away a soul that came to him in sincerity and humility. Never, 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 never. So she continues. He had cut off the channels of communication that heaven had ordained. He had sinned away the spirit of grace. He had done that. And could he be answered by dreams and revelations from the Lord? Saul did not turn to God with humility and repentance. It was not pardon for sin and reconciliation with God that he sought, but deliverance from his foes. That's what he's really concerned about. He wants to be delivered from the Philistines. Well, his much greater need of deliverance was not from the Philistines, but from his own heart. In fact, Ellen White has a, a line in here that is just, which we'll come back to. He needed to be delivered from the tyranny of his own selfish heart, his own prideful heart, his own sin-filled and sinful heart. Saul did not turn to God with humility and repentance. No, it was not pardon for sin and reconciliation with God that he sought. No, but deliverance from his foes. Yes, correct. By his own stubbornness, by his own stubbornness and rebellion, he had cut himself off from God. I mean, she's just hammering at this point saying it in every possible way, from this angle, from this angle, saying it over here, saying it like this, saying it here. She's making the point unambiguously that this is not something that God has initiated or that God wanted or desired. This God's forsaking, God's rejection of Saul is only in response to Saul's serial rejection of God and of his will and of his word and of his prophets. So let's finish this up here. By his own stubbornness and rebellion he had cut himself off from God. There could be no return but by the way of penitence and contrition. But but the proud monarch in his anguish and despair determined to seek help from another source. And that source is not the source of light, it's the source of darkness. Right? So then Saul basically turns to his uh, some of his advisors and says, "Look, I need to find a person who who has a familiar spirit, somebody who's involved in sorcery, necromancy. And uh, he knew, as she says, that this was expressly forbidden in the law of Moses, in the word. And uh, yet he says, I I need to talk to Samuel. I have to talk to Samuel. And, And this is one of the crucial points here. Saul has failed to recognize that Samuel was merely a vessel. Samuel was a conduit through whom God spoke but he has begun to see Samuel as an end in himself. So he, he could just go straight to God in prayer, in humility, and in contrition, but because his mind is blinded to the fact that, that God is the true spokesman, God is the primary end, the final end, no, he tries to go to Samuel, who is merely a stand-in, a, a spokesman. And of course, this is not going to go to plan at all, but it's a crucial distinction. That he had mistaken the vessel for the one who was wise. Samuel was not in himself wise and and all of the things that Samuel wonderfully was. No, that was all the infilling of the Spirit of God into Samuel's life. And how often do we do the same? We elevate the person and we forget that the person is merely a vessel, a conduit for God, for God's goodness, for God's wisdom, for God's word. And very often we want to elevate them, oh. He's amazing. She's fantastic. And listen, there is a sense in which when people have a skill or a talent or an ability, amen, we can affirm that. There's no sin in that. But even there, we should see that, that all beauty is God's beauty, and all wisdom is God's wisdom, and all truth is God's truth. And we are but merely capturing in our own way and in our own sort of idiosyncratic, you know, with our own talents, we're capturing, we're borrowing God's beauty, God's wisdom, God's truth that's what's happening. And so we, we need to be careful in our elevation, this kind of celebrity culture, the elevation of people. We should recognize that every good gift and every perfect gift comes down from the father of lights and whom is no shadow of turning. There's no variability with him. That's what the Bible says in the book of James. Okay, so he, he's advised that there is this witch, this sorceress in the land of Endor, and so he decides to go visit her. He knows it's wrong, but he feels forsaken by God. He just has to at, at some incredible expense meet Samuel. He 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 needs to hear from Samuel. The very prophet who he would not listen to and who he had distanced himself from when he was alive, he now will try to reconnect with through forbidden means. And so we come to page 832. Paragraph begins, disguising himself. Exactly. Disguising himself. Saul went out by night with but two attendants to seek the retreat of the sorceress. O oh, pitiable sight! The king of Israel led captive by Satan at his will. And Ellen White here is basically quoting from Second Timothy chapter two verse twenty-six that says that we are led captive by Satan's will when we place ourselves on his ground. Second Timothy chapter two verse twenty-six. What path so dark for human feet to tread as that cho- as that chosen by one who has perished, in having his own way, resisting the holy influences of the Spirit of God. What bondage so terrible? This was the point I was highlighting earlier. Listen to this. This is incredible, this sentence. What bondage, what slavery so terrible as that of him who is given over to the control of the worst of tyrants, himself? Wow. That line has to be grasped, has to be underlined, has to be understood. The greatest tyrant, the greatest potential tyrant to our own soul is us. It's not somebody, it's not even Satan, and it's not some other person, it's not some villain, it's not some dark foe, it's not some ghoulish figure. The greatest danger to us is us, it's me. The greatest danger to David Ashford, the greatest tyrant that could rule my life and lead me down a path of darkness and shadows and despair is me. Is me. It reminds me that in New Zealand, very much unlike Australia, in Australia everything wants to kill you, right? There are spiders that want to kill you, there are alligators that want to kill you, there are sharks that want to kill you. I said alligators, crocodiles. There are sharks that want to kill you, there are stingrays that want to kill you, there are snakes that want to kill you. Almost everything in Australia is trying to kill you except for the people. The people are really great people. In New Zealand there is nothing dangerous in the wilderness. Right? There's no poisonous spiders. There's no poisonous snakes. In New Zealand, that, that is very different than Australia in that regard. And so there's a bit of a saying because New Zealand is maybe the most beautiful country in the world. Certainly, I think the most beautiful country in the Southern Hemisphere, at least that I've ever been to. And there's a saying for those people that go out and spend a lot of time in the New Zealand wilderness, which over the years I've had the privilege of doing. And they say this they say the most dangerous thing in the New Zealand backcountry is you. Is yourself. And when people die in the New Zealand backcountry, it's because they've made stupid decisions. They've tried to descend a a wet mountain, and they slide to their death. They've tried to cross a swollen river, and they're swept away, right? They've tried to go on too long of a journey with too little food, and they've died of exposure. Yet when, when you die in the New Zealand wilderness, it's almost certainly because you made a bad choice. You're the most dangerous thing. So too in our spiritual journey. So too in our spiritual journey. The most dangerous person to you is not some other person external to you. It's not even Satan himself. It's you. Read that sentence again. It's amazing. She says, "Um, what What bondage so terrible as that of him who is given over to the control of the worst of tyrants himself, herself. Trust in God and obedience to his will were the only conditions upon which Saul could be the king of Israel. Had he complied with the conditions throughout his reign, his kingdom would have been secure. And remember, all the way back in chapter 42, which was a chapter on the law, my word was conditions. Conditions. You don't just get to be the king willy-nilly. I mean, God's will was not that they have a king, that they have a monarchy. But even then, even in this accommodation that God uh, uh, stoops to, that he condescends to, even with this accommodation, there were still conditions. There were still stipulations. And we've already sort of itemized some of those. And yet, to use a very important word, which I imagine is maybe some of your words for this chapter, Saul tried to be an independent monarch, independent from the one who is king of kings and lord of lords. And in his independence... He found himself alienated from God, not because God had forsaken him, but because he had forsaken God. And yet, and yet, and yet, stay in this same, stay in the same paragraph with me because this is just unbelievable. She continues, God had borne long with Saul. He was patient. And although his rebellion and obstinacy had well nigh, which means very nearly, had very nearly silenced the divine vo- voice in his soul, there was still opportunity for repentance. What? 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 Still an opportunity for repentance? I mean, I have people, it's, it's so cute. I have people, it's unfortunate and it's sad, but it's also kind of cute in its own way. I've had people come up to me 19 years old, 20 years old, 25 years old, and they're like, Pastor Asherick, I think I've committed the unpardonable sin. I think, I think I've sealed the deal. I think the door is closed. It's locked. It's, it's nailed shut. I think I'm lost. Permanently, irretrievably lost. And it's, it's, it just goes to show that in its own way, an absorption with sin is its own narcissism. Like you think you're that bad? You're so bad. Wow. You are so bad that you have eclipsed even God's infinite mercy, his infinite goodness. No, you have not. Stop taking yourself so seriously, right? Like what a joke. You have not committed the unpardonable sin, particularly not if you're actually, you know, worried about it. It's a, it's a form of kind of perverse narcissism to think that you, in your 18 years, your 20 years, your 25 years, have exhausted the goodness of God. Let me just remind you, let me just remind you, Saul has slain 85 priests of God, among other acts And even now, she says, even now, she says, I'll read it again. His rebellion and obstinacy had well nigh, very nearly silenced the divine voice in the soul. There was still an opportunity for repentance. So come and talk to me when you have slain 85 of God's most high priests and prophets and preachers and pastors. Come talk to me then and we can talk about the unpardonable sins. Now, I'm not making light of the unpardonable sin. It is a thing. It actually does occur, and it does happen, and people can seal off that channel of communication, even short of slaying 85 of God's priests. But it's a little bit of, again, perverse narcissism to think that you have exhausted the infinite mercy of God and the infinite goodness of God. No, what you've actually done is you have so elevated and so magnified sin in your own mind that you're making it harder and harder and harder for you to see, for you to perceive, for you to understand God's infinite goodness and mercy. And so when people come to me and they say this, I just say, if you're concerned about it, if you're worried about it, it's a guarantee that you have not committed that sin. You just haven't. I mean, and and let's just turn away from the impartable sin and just remind ourselves here of God's incredible goodness of his mercy, of his kindness, of his patience. I mean, she says that even now, even now, right up to the point where he went to the sorceress, right up to that point, there was still an opportunity for repentance. Narrow though it be, unlikely though it be. And again, that channel was, you know, occluded not by God, but by Saul's own choices. Let's remind ourselves. Um, uh, Saul had rejected. Saul had slain. Saul had cut off the channels. Saul had exiled. Saul had sinned away the grace. Saul had cut himself off from God. Even now, with 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 that channel almost completely occluded, there was still still the possibility. But going to the sorceress fully occluded, fully closed that possibility, eclipsed that light. There was this that little sliver, that thin crescent of light that that vanishingly unlikely possibility, but when he went in darkness, in the night, in disguise, to Satan as a source of light, which is in fact a source of darkness. In fact, I couldn't shake this whole chapter. The whole chapter I couldn't shake. Matthew chapter 6, verses 22 and 23. Let me just read that for you here. This is right in the Sermon on the Mount. And because Ty and I just recently did this series on the Sermon on the Mount, which I hope you've also watched, Kingdom Manifesto, It's just really been on my mind and in my heart. So let me just read you this here. Matthew chapter six, verses 22 and 23. The lamp of the body is the eye. If therefore your eye is good, your whole body will be full of light. Okay. All he's saying here in verse 22 is you don't see out of your elbow. You don't see out of your hand. You don't see out of your nose, right? You don't see out of your chest. You see out of your eye. That's what's meant. It's kind of a, it's a a little metaphor here. The lamp the thing that brings light into your body, right, into your sort of frame of, of, of reality, how you perceive the world around you, is the eye. So I'll read it again. Uh, the lamp of the body is the eye. And he says, if therefore your eye is good, your whole body will be full of light, right? So I have good eyes. I do need glasses. But right now I can see things. I can see the, the camera in front of me. I can see the words on the page. I can see Instagram live. I can see things because my, my eyes are working. Now, listen to verse 23. He says, But, but, if your eye is bad, right? If your eyes aren't working properly, or if you're blind, if it's if it's no vision at all, complete occlusion, right, of sight, if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. And then he makes this point. If, therefore, the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? If the thing that's supposed to bring light is actually bringing darkness, you're in total darkness. And I, I won't go into the application here in the Sermon on the Mount. You can go watch that in the Kingdom Manifesto series, except to say that the, the light that God had given to Saul, the light that God had given to the world, was through his prophets. It was through his law. It was through his word. And now, instead of going to the source of light, he goes to the source of darkness, and all I was thinking was, he's blind. He's willfully voluntarily, now irredeemably blind. Because the very thing that should be bringing him light to go to a supernatural source, that is to say God, he is now going to the other supernatural source and finally, tragically, terribly, that little ray, that little glimmer of possibility, vanishingly unlikely though it be, is now completely eclipsed. And yet up until that point, Up until that point, even with all of his rebellion, all of his obstinacy, all of his pride, all of his murderous rage and insanity, up until that point, there was still a chance. God was open. God was desirous. God was hoping. God was, because love believes all things and hopes all things. And it wasn't God who finally said, you know what? That's it. Bam, and slams the door. That's not how it works. It was Saul in his decision to now go, not to the source of light, but to the source of darkness that finally eclipsed and occluded any hope or possibility of repentance. You've got to get this in your mind. And if you, get, if you get it clear in your mind, then you will be able to understand a great deal, not only of the Old, but of the New Testament. To quote Ellen White again, I know I've already said it, but I'll quote it again. The Lord never turned away a soul. Never turned away a soul that came to him in sincerity and in humility. So if somebody comes to me, they think they've committed the unpardonable sin, They're and often they're young people, which I get it. They're sensitive. They maybe had bad religion that, that trained them to not understand the goodness of God, the grace of God, the patience of God, the long-suffering of God. They didn't understand. And so, yeah, I, I'm not being harsh on them, except to say that they are believing something that's untrue. And I say to them, well, why don't we right now get on our knees, like in this very second, Why don't we, right in this very moment, you and I get on our knees and pray right now that you return and turn to God? Why don't we do that? It's so much more powerful to say, let's pray, rather than to say, I will pray for you. You know, how many times have we all made that promise? I'll pray for you, brother. I'll pray for you, sister. And then we forget. No, far better to say, let's pray. Let's pray. Let's pray right now. And if there, and by the way, I've done this, I've done this many times. If there's a willingness, if the person says, okay, yeah, let's do that. Let's kneel and pray. Just before we pray, I say, there is no way, no way that you have committed the unpardonable sin. If you are now willing at just my little invitation, let's kneel and pray right now. Let's turn and return to God. And if you don't know how to pray, I will pray for you and you can repeat after me. Do you want to do that? If they say, yes, I want to do that. I say, well, then it's a guarantee that you have not committed the unpardonable sin. If you are in a state of mind where you not only can do this, but you want to do this and you're willing to do it right now with me on the spot, you are savable. And this can happen right now in this very second. And I've seen people just begin to weep tears of joy to realize, wait a minute, I still there's still a chance for me. There's still an opportunity for me. Then I say, friends, not only is there a chance and an opportunity for you, You have your whole life ahead of you, particularly when I'm dealing with young people. This is the enemy that's tried to convince you that you are in great darkness. Well, you are in darkness, but that darkness can be dispersed and disappear in a moment, in a second, right here, right now. We're gonna get on our knees, we're gonna pray. We're gonna open the word of God, we're gonna claim his promises, and you will be delivered from this self-imposed bondage. Hallelujah. Man, I just, when I read that, I couldn't believe what I was reading. I'll read it again. God had borne long with Saul, and although his rebellion and obstinacy had well nigh, very nearly, silenced the divine voice in the soul, there was still opportunity for repentance. And then the next word, but, but when in his peril he turned from God to obtain light, that's a purposeful play on words. And I'm persuaded that Ellen White might have had Matthew six twenty-two and twenty-three in her own mind when she was writing this. She never quotes it. But this is a fascinating use of the word light because it's just how Jesus uses the word light in in Matthew chapter six. I was going to turn there, but he says, if the light that is in you is darkness. What a weird thing to say. If the light that is in you is darkness. Well, this is a weird thing to say. He turned from God to obtain light, but that light that is being sought for is darkness. Bam. To obtain light from a confederate of Satan, he had cut, he had cut, underline it. He had cut the last tie that bound him to his maker. He had placed himself fully under the control of the demon- of the demoniac power, which for years had been exercised upon him and which had brought him to the verge of destruction. So then the story, uh, she begins the next paragraph, under the cover of darkness, Saul and his attendants, they arrive at the, the place of the witch of Endor. And uh, it's a sad, tragic story. The woman perceives that this is Saul, he's tall, and he's brought these gifts, and she says, oh, I know what this is. You're just trying to sniff me out. You're trying to smoke me out so that you can, and he said, no, 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 it's not that. I actually need your services. He even says, and think of the irony of this, he even says, as Yahweh lives, no punishment will come upon you. That just goes to show you how far gone he is, that he takes the name of Yahweh to swear that no harm will come to this medium of familiar spirits. Wow! Clearly, he is insane. So, so then, what happens is she, you know, pulls up or draws up in her, you know, dark arts, her necromancy, and 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 Saul's waiting with bated breath. What what is it that you see? What? Are, and she said, "I saw a spirit ascending out of the earth." And now, the point here is is that. At no point does Saul see this. He's just going on her word, and she's, she's not trustworthy, right? She is, there's just no reason at all to trust her, to believe anything that she's saying is true. And so it's important to understand that she's the medium. Literally, she's the intermediary between this power, the satanic, demonic power, and Saul. So so Saul doesn't see this. He asks her what she sees, and she says, I saw, I saw a spirit ascending up out of the earth. An old man is coming up, and he is covered with a mantle. Now, Saul is so desperate that as soon as he hears that, he's like, whoa, it's Samuel. Yeah, an old man in a mantle, as if she wouldn't know what Samuel would look like, right? The aged prophet wearing a cloak. I mean, come on, this is all farcical. And Saul perceived that it was Samuel. It was not Samuel. Of course, it's not Samuel. God is not going to respond. And Ellen White makes this point again and again. God is under no obligation, and not, as, not only is he under no obligation, but there's no sense in which God is going to respond to this perverse, you know, uh, attempt to draw up Samuel, who was sleeping in the grave, awaiting the resurrection. Come on now. Saul perceived that it was Samuel. He stooped with his face to the ground, and he bowed down, and then Ellen White, she just crack, hits this right out of the park, It was not God's holy prophet that came forth at the spell of a sorcerer's incantation. Samuel was not present in the haunt of evil spirits. That supernatural appearance was produced solely by the power of Satan. He could as easily assume the form of Samuel as he could an angel of light. Bam, which is really an angel of darkness, which again has echoes of Matthew 6, 22 and 23. uh, When he tempted Christ in the wilderness. She goes on to say that um, the pre- she calls him the, pre- the pretended prophet. And um, then Saul says, hey, I'm, I'm really, I need your advice. I need your counsel. And uh, she says at the bottom of that page, 833, 680 of the original, when Samuel was living, Saul had despised his counsel and had resented his reproofs. Um, but now in the hour of his distress and calamity, he felt that the prophet's guidance was his only hope the prophet's guidance. Remember, Saul's big mistake here, one of his many big mistakes, is to think that Samuel was an end in himself, that what he needed was the prophet's guidance. No, the prophet is merely a vehicle, a conduit, a vessel through which God's guidance was given. That's why they were called seers, literally a seer, one who sees, right? They saw what God revealed to them, so they were merely passing, you know, the baton was being handed to them, and they were passing it on. Eh, Pass it on pass it on pass it on but Saul here in his darkness and in his madness thinks that Samuel is the thing and thought that Samuel was the thing because he's eclipsed God in his shame in his guilt in his disobedience he's eclipsed God and so it says here he felt that the prophet's guidance was his only hope and and we do the same thing not to this extent or but we often will elevate the preacher oh she was amazing he was amazing. He's my favorite preacher. And don't get me wrong. There are communicators that I really like. There are people that I like to read and like to listen to. There's nothing wrong with that. But the idea that we then trans transition from seeing the, the person, that woman, that man, as a vessel or a vehicle for God's word, for God's wisdom, and we start to see them as an end in themselves, that is idolatry that is idolatry, and it is expressly forbidden in the text of Scripture. And it's unwise. It's not only bad for you, it's bad for the person that's being idolized. And this does happen with a lot of these, like, very famous pastors, preachers, televangelists, and others. They begin to believe their own hype, and then they are ruled by, remember, the greatest tyrant themselves. <laughs> um, so then, uh, basically, the, the word to Saul is, yeah, I told you so. I told you so, and I wrote in my margin here, Satan presses our failures upon us. Ellen White says that that what Samuel said, Samuel in air quotes, uh, was perfectly calculated to increase Saul's despair. And here again, Satan plays both sides of the fence. He draws us and he drives us to despair with disobedience. He He plunges us into darkness by encouraging us to make bad decisions. And then when we cry out, he reminds us of what? The text about mercy, the text about forgiveness, the text about the gospel? No, he does not. He reminds us of what? The text about judgment and punishment and disobedience and even the unpardonable sin. He plays both sides of the equation. He drives us to a condition, and then when we cry out, he reminds us of all the texts that say, yeah, sorry, you made a lot of bad choices, and bad choices will be summarily punished. That's what he does here. And she basically says, I'll just read this here. This is on the paragraph, page 834, 681. Paragraph begins all through his course. All through his course of rebellion, Saul had been flattered and deceived by Satan. It is the tempter's work to belittle sin, to make the path of transgression, transgression easy and inviting, to blind the mind to the warnings and threatenings of the Lord. Satan, by his bewitching power, had led Saul to justify himself in defiance of Samuel's reproofs and warning. He played that side of the fence. But now, in his extremity, he turned upon him, presenting the enormity of his sin and the hopelessness of pardon, that he might goad him to desperation. Nothing could have been better chosen to destroy his courage and confuse his judgment, or to drive him to despair and self-destruction. Exactly! This is what Satan does. He drives us to sin, he draws us to sin, he woos us to sin, and then when we've sinned, and we're feeling guilt, and we're feeling shame, and we're feeling self-condemnation, He then presses those texts upon us and says, this is how God feels about you, which further, as she says here, confuses our judgment and drives us to despair. Okay, this is basically what happened with Adam and Eve in the garden. They've partaken of the fruit, the the forbidden fruit, and they then discern and perceive that they are naked. They have guilt. They have shame. They have self-condemnation. And then this is key. Don't miss this. When they then hear the voice of God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, they, this is essential to grasp, they assume that their own internal voice of condemnation and guilt and shame is an accurate reflection of God's attitude toward them. And so they flee from God because Satan has played both sides of the equation. He led them to sin, and then he led them to think that the way that they feel about sin is the way that God feels about them. No. No. In fact, in the Garden of Eden, God has come down into the garden. He knows what's happened. He's come down into the garden to announce that a way of escape has been made, that it's going to be okay, that a plan has already been put in place whereby the deceiver's head will be crushed. And then he clothes them with tunics of skins to announce to them, It's going to be okay. It will be painful. It will be a process. It will be difficult. But it's going to be, he preaches the gospel to them. And so we need to not allow Satan to trick us into thinking that our own internal voices of guilt and shame and condemnation are an accurate reflection of God's attitude toward us. They are not. Let me read it again. The Lord never turned away a soul that came to him in sincerity and humility when you feel that guilt, when you feel that shame, when you feel that despair, when you feel that despondency, when you feel that self-incrimination and condemnation, you are tempted to think that this is God's posture toward you, God's attitude toward you, God's feeling toward you. It is not. That's the enemy. That's the voice of the enemy playing the other side of the equation now that he's tempted you to sin, he's enticed you to sin, he's drawn you to sin, and you have sinned you now feel self guilt, self condemnation, shame, and then you think, this is how God feels about me. Hallelujah, ladies and gentlemen. It is not. It is not. That is the voice of the enemy, and you need to recognize it for what it is. He here plays the other side of the equation. He drives Saul to despair, and then when Saul in desperation reaches out to, in air quotes, Samuel, He says to him, he reminds him of the words of Samuel and presses him into despair, into his sin, reminding him of judgment. That is the work of the enemy, my friends. Okay, so then Ellen White makes this point where I wrote in my margin here, scene, which I often do, you know, S-C-E-N-E, like what a scene. The, the, The chosen of Israel, the anointed of Israel, the first king of Israel in a dark, dingy, gloomy, shadowy, Cave falling on his face, despairing before a sorceress. I I just wrote scene, and then amazingly, in the very next paragraph, Ellen White writes, What a scene! Exclamation point. Exactly. So, the word that I mentioned at the outset is the word nadir. Do you know the word nadir? N A D I R. Nadir. And nadir is um, it's the opposite of the zenith. So the zenith is the highest point. The nadir is the lowest point. N A D I R, nadir. Okay? And let me just type it here. I've never done this before. Let's try this. N A D I R. Ooh, I'm, I'm participating in the chat. Look at that. Wow. This is new. Okay, so the nadir is the lowest point. And there is a case to be made that. I think a good case to be made that up to this point in Israel's history, this is the nadir. This is the lowest point. The anointed of God, the chosen of God, even though, again, monarchy was not God's ideal, is now being ministered to, (laughs) incredible, by a sorceress who's living in direct defiance of God's law, God's express command about having familiar spirits. I mean, you read the law of Moses, it says that this should be punished with death. So this is the lowest of the lowest of the lowest point. That word is nadir. So then the next day, um, oh, I thought this was quite interesting. Um, I want to read that paragraph very quickly, page 835, before the break of day, which by the way, I was not sure about what that meant, the break of day. Like, is the break of day mean when the sun breaks? It's not. The break of day is when the first light of dawn appears. That's the break of day. I I looked it up this morning just to be sure. I looked up the dictionary definition. So this is interesting. That period then before the break of day would be the very darkest moment, right? Just before the break of day would be the darkest moment of the night in in that those moments before the sun, the the, the initial rays of the sun break through. So it kind of has that Judas feel where after he is, You know, been there in the Last Supper with Jesus, and it says, and he went out, and it was night. You know, it reminds me of Isaiah 60. Darkness covers the earth, and gross darkness the people. Incredible darkness. Thick darkness. Almost impenetrable darkness. Darkness that you can almost feel. So I want to read that paragraph. Before the break of day, he returned with his attendants to the camp of Israel to make ready for the conflict. By consulting that spirit of darkness, Saul had destroyed himself. Underline it, mark it, put a box around it. That's the point. God didn't destroy Saul. God didn't kill Saul. God didn't reject Saul until Saul had rejected God so fully, so finally, that all God could do was recognize the serially bad decisions that Saul had made. Saul had destroyed himself. Oppressed by the horror of despair, it would be impossible for him to inspire his army with courage. Separated from the source of strength. Yeah, that's right. Separated. He could not lead the minds of Israel to look to God as their helper. Why? Because he couldn't himself look to God. He went to the source of darkness. Thus, and I thought this was interesting, thus the prediction of evil would work its own accomplishment. In other words, it was a self-fulfilling prophecy. It was a self-fulfilling... He went with despair, he felt only despair, he was surrounded by only darkness, and so dark, despairing things occurred. He created the situation by his own mental outlook, and then he feels this doom, this shadowy sense of impending doom, and sure enough, he dies that very day. He actually ends his own life which is the second suicide that we've encountered in our OT with DA challenge, right? Because Samuel's pushing of the pillars was a suicide. And Samuel's, uh, did I say Samuel? Samson's. Samson's pushing of the pillars was a suicide. And it was, again, a dark, tragic, terrible story. And in Samson's case, it was literally dark because his eyes had been gouged out and he'd been taken to Gaza. So these were two opportunities, both Samson it would be interesting to look at the parallels between Samson and Saul. These were incredible opportunities for deliverance, for God to come through in a big way through these men if they could have humbled themselves, but both of them end their own lives in darkness. And so he falls on his own sword, ends his life, and then it goes to talk about how Uh, you know, it's it's the the second to the last or third to the last paragraph here was really macabre, very dark. And the Philistines take his body and they cut the head off and they hang his body up in the temple. And the significance of that, of course, is that our gods have triumphed over Yahweh, over Jehovah. And um, then these brave men of Jabesh Gilead, they go by night and they steal away the body and they give it a proper burial, or I think they actually burn the bodies. And then here's the very last sentence of this chapter. Thus, the noble deed performed 40 years before, secured for Saul and his sons burial by tender and pitying hands in that dark hour of defeat and dishonor. Tomorrow, we will talk more about... Ooh, that's good, Sylvia. Sylvia says uh, his last meal, Saul's last meal, with the witch was an emblem of his covenant with Satan outstanding insight, and I totally agree. I've never thought that before, but that is spot on. Because very often at, at covenant, um, when covenants are made, when covenants are, are confirmed and ratified, a meal is eaten. This happened at Sinai. It happens in the uh, upper room with Jesus and his disciples. It happens at weddings. Yeah, that's a great insight. Very good there, Sylvia. He eats that meal, and in a weird, tragic, terrible way, this is the ratification of of his covenant with Satan. Wow. Okay, let's look at our rubric here and uh, then uh, our word. So the point, the person, the prayer, the practice, and the promise, the point of this chapter is to tell the sad, dark story of the final demise of Israel's first king, Saul, the son of Kish. What do we learn about God, the person? Well, you know what I'm going to say here. I'm just quoting from page 831, uh, 676 of the original. The Lord never turns away a soul that comes to him in sincerity and humility. Print that out, hang it on your fridge. That, that's one to never forget. That's one to memorize. That's one to to tattoo, not on your skin, but on your heart. Put that permanently on your heart. The Lord never turns away a soul that comes to him in sincerity and humility. The prayer, how do we pray this chapter? Here's what I put, Father, keep me from venturing to explore and to play on Satan's ground. Why go there, right? Adam and Eve, or at least Eve, and then Adam, you know, by proxy, went to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, placed herself on Satan's vantage ground. Saul here places himself on Satan's vantage ground, and this is so easy to do because now with a with a phone, with the click of a button, you can be instantly exposed to just about anything. I mean, terrible things, grotesque things, sensual things, perverse things, things of of skepticism and without faith. It we mean, just click, click, and there you are. So we are literally carrying around with us a portal to all of the darkest things in the world. We I mean, just click, 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 and curiosity can get the best of us. And before you know it, you're seeing things, hearing things, and reading things that you thought you never would. And so we have to be so careful. We have to monitor ourselves. And we also, it's really great to have uh, people that hold us to account, friends and family members and a spouse and, and people that we can surround ourselves with a community of accountability, a community of love, a community where we're all heading in the same direction and helping one another to make good decisions. Amen. So Father, help me from venturing to explore and to play on Satan's ground. How do I practice this chapter? Well, I put to keep the channels of communication with God open daily and enthusiastically, to keep those channels open, to not allow them to, over time, occlude more and still more and still more, such that that I only have half of the flow available to me. No, I want those channels to be full, like a fire hydrant, to be open. I'm in his word, and I'm on my knees, and I'm in nature with consistency and with enthusiasm. Keep the channels open. Remember, one of the things that she says about Saul here was that he closed the channels. right? Here it is. He had cut off the channels of communication that heaven had ordained. Keep the channels open, right? We talk a lot about what is it? Uh, arterial sclerosis, right? the occluding of the arteries with cholesterol and, and other fats. yeah, keep't don't, don't only, only worry about cholesterol, worry about spiritual cholesterol. Those things that stick to the inside of those channels and make it harder, to have the full flow, the the full stream of God's goodness and his mercy. Keep the channels open daily and enthusiastically. That's what I want to do. On my knees every day, in the word every day, in nature every day, spirit of gratitude every day, every day. Um, And then finally, the promise for me is Hebrews chapter 13 verse 5, I will never leave you nor forsake you. I love that word never. Okay, now I want to know what your word is. Probably you can guess my word. I've said it like half a dozen times. Probably a dozen, actually. Frank says, preach it. Victor says, Samson's death was almost like dying in war because it would have most likely killed him at some point after sporting with him, or he would have just died. I guess that's a part of a larger conversation that I missed out on. So looking for parallels between Samson and, and Saul. Gotcha. Okay, Susanna 63 says, darkness, that's my word. Exactly. Oh, a lot of this. Okay. Darkness, dark, impending, demonic, dark. Yeah. She uses the word darkness so many times. And she uses a lot of synonyms for darkness, like shadows and night. And then that whole line there before, just before the break of dawn, independent, good word, obstinacy, self-gratification, darkness, dark, bewitched. Ooh, good word, Marco. Doom. Yeah. She uses that word at least once, maybe twice or more inquire, goad. Oh, interesting, Brady. Very good. Or Sherry. Um, Bondage, silenced. Oh, himself. I I see what you've done there. The greatest tyrant, himself. Cut, as in cut out, desperation. CJ girl says, hey guys, I'm so behind, but I'm trying to catch up. Well, they're available on YouTube. You'll be fine. Shadows, darkness, self-seeking, trust, despair, Oh, Samson's death wasn't a suicide. Yeah, no, I totally disagree there. It was definitely a suicide. There's no question about that, in my opinion. Um, I mean, he did an act that brought about his own death. You can say, well, he was going to die anyway. Well, Saul was going to die here anyway when he fell on his own sword. Was that a suicide? Ellen White calls it self-murder. She literally says in the chapter it was self-murder. Um, witchcraft enormity. Oh, forfeited very good uh Sylvia says instead of forfeiting his sin he forfeits his own life wow excellent deceived despair vain oh my word was yeah okay gotcha more hopeful because Saul lost the light when he replaced it with darkness but it is always there to those that seek it amen self-murder defeat forfeited yeah my word was darkness I mean she uses the word over and over again she uses words like shadows night, um, before the break of day, a lot of synonyms here. And again, this is really the nadir. This is the lowest point of Israel's history up to this point, where Israel's representative, I mean, Israel's monarch, again, it wasn't God's plan. Um, it was not God's plan that they have a king, but now they do have a king, and the opportunity for the king to be a man after God's own heart was there. It was on offer. And so this is the lowest point. Point. Oh, let's see. White RG, or I guess that's R. G. White says, Samson acted for other reasons other than to bring about. Of course, yeah, that's true. Yeah, he had, he had other things he was trying to accomplish, which was namely the death of the Philistines, but he also ended his own life, and he knew that would happen. That was a that was an inseparable consequence from his action. So he took actions that ended his own life. Did he have a larger, you know, uh Goal in view? Yes, he did. Of course he did. But he also ended his own life, and by definition, that's suicide. And it, it's the point here is only to say that my point is that with both Saul and Samuel, both of these could have been such different stories. The opportunities were there. The talent was there. The ability was there. The The, the opportunity to work in and with God was there, and yet both of them ended so sad and so dark and so tragic, and both of them took their own lives in ways that are not identical, I grant that, but it's just a point of connection and a point of similarity where what might have been, what could have been, was missed, and it just ends in utter tragedy. Okay, everybody, let's... um close with prayer. We'll be back tomorrow. Um, our chapter tomorrow is, is kind of, I think, a summary of sorcery, uh, both ancient and modern, I think is what the chapter's titled or something like that. So we'll be back tomorrow, same time, same place. And thank you all for tuning in to OT with TA. Let's close with prayer. Father in heaven, we lean into you, we love you, and we want to pray that you will teach us how to keep the channels open. Um, Father, we need that, not just weekly And not just occasionally or episodically, we need it daily. And Father, even sometimes more often than daily, we need to scrape that that cholesterol, that spiritual cholesterol off the inside of our arteries so that there's a clean flow, a clean channel between you and us. Father, help us to be on our knees. Help us to be in your word. Help us to be in community. Help us to be in nature. Help us to be in service so that all of those channels are open and flowing. Um, Father, we love you. We know that it is your love for us. That's the big love. And, and it's, it's the biggest story of love. And help us to remember, Father, that even if we have failed and fallen and sinned in those internal voices of shame and guilt and self-condemnation are screaming at us that we are rejected by God. Father, help us to know that's the voice of the enemy, that if we but turn in confession and repentance, we are instantly received, instantly reinstated. Like the story of the prodigal son, a robe is put on us, a ring on our fingers, sandals on our feet, and we are reinstated to the position that we seemingly had forfeited permanently, but you can reinstate and restore in that moment and redeem in that very moment. So Father, we, we do that right now. We, we confess, we receive, we accept. Give us today a great day with you, and may we finish the OT with DA challenge every bit as strong as we began it is our prayer in Jesus' name, amen.